0: welcome back to the podcast in our last thrilling episode we heard the tale of roger williams who was exiled from the massachusetts bay colony facing deportation back to england he ran away late in the night during the deep heart of winter while also being very sick he found refuge among the wampanoag and with help from the narragansett created the settlement of providence As I said at the beginning of that episode, Roger Williams is often credited as the founder of Rhode Island. But as we'll learn in this episode, Anne Hutchinson, more than anyone else, is actually responsible for the English settlement of Rhode Island, the actual island of Rhode Island, whereas Providence sits on the mainland. But neither Roger Williams' Providence, nor the settlement that will be founded by Anne Hutchinson's followers, will be the great state of Rhode Island that we know today. Because we're in the other states of America History Podcast, and this episode, like the last, will take place in a time before the Rhode Island that we know and love. Anne Hutchinson was born in 1591 in Alford Lincolnshire, England, of course. Her maiden name was Anne Marbury. Her father was a Puritan reverend, Cambridge-educated, very sure of himself, and often came into conflicts with the Anglican establishment. Little Anne, through her father received the best possible education of the day he was determined that she despite her sex would be very well educated he was perhaps her biggest role model as she would grow up to be outspoken extremely confident and to back this up she was extremely knowledgeable Anne was only about 20 years old when her father passed away in her adult life perhaps the only father figure she would have now was the reverend john cotton no doubt an acquaintance of her father. Cotton was also a mentor to Reverend John Wheelwright, who ended up becoming her brother-in-law as both John and Anne married into the Hutchinson family. John and Anne's spouses were brother and sister. And Hutchinson's husband was William Hutchinson, who was a cloth merchant. In our last episode, I brought up how Roger Williams came from a family of merchant tailors. Now, just to put things into perspective a family of cloth merchants would be slightly higher on the socioeconomic scale than merchant tailors this is important to keep in mind because william hutchinson always seems to have money to invest throughout this entire story the hutchinsons never really go without in 1633 john cotton moved to the massachusetts bay colony and like many puritan reverends at the time they would be at the head of leading an exodus essentially out of their home communities To the new world john cotton would be no exception the Hutchinsons would follow in the next year 1634 bringing along all 11 of their children many more from the general area of lincolnshire would join them and reverend john wheelwright would show up in 1636 today we would probably use the term chain migration to describe this type of immigration however chain migration often looks like one person comes over and then they sponsor the rest of their family And then they bring over their brother and their sister's families. And then they bring over their cousins. And before you know it, you have a a small budding community. But the famous Puritan migration to New England would come in waves. John Winthrop, when he arrived in 1630, brought a number of boats with him that in total contained somewhere around 700 people. This loss of population in England proper was of some concern to authorities. But imagine being the location of the arrival of these immigrants. Imagine being in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and your little community doubling or quadrupling seemingly overnight. And so especially at these early dates, each wave of people had the potential to overturn everything. But riding on the reputation of John Cotton, these new migrants that came over, specifically part of his flock, they fit in quite well. William Hutchinson served as a deputy to the general court in 1635 and was even present for the banishment of Roger Williams. It also helped that William Hutchinson had money to invest, especially in the port of Boston. Governor Winthrop would later say of William that he was a man of very mild temper and weak parts and wholly guided by his wife. If you look at what we already know of the man, it doesn't appear to be true. And I think that Governor Winthrop has shaded the true nature of William Hutchinson with his outright hatred of Anne Hutchinson, which will, throughout this episode, make Governor Winthrop look like a bigger and bigger villain in our story. But before we start to bury his reputation, he has one nice thing to say about Anne Hutchinson. He said of her that she was a woman of ready wit and bold spirit. This will be the last nice thing he says about her as we now launch into what it was that Anne Hutchinson was thinking and teaching and doing that would get her in trouble with the authorities of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Hutchinson's beliefs, of course, are rooted in Puritanism, which is Calvinist in view, believing in predestination, in fate. God is the great clockmaker, and the universe has already been designed, and everything that is going to happen is already scheduled in his great book. That means in its strictest sense, Puritanism, not all the time, but in its strictest sense, did not allow much room for free will. God is the designer. God is perfect. God can see all, think all, be all. And that perfect being has already designed you and the universe and your life and your children's life and your grandchildren's life. And he has already decided what will happen to you in the afterlife. You are already predestined to be among the elect who will be saved through God's grace or the damned. Now that sounds rigid, but there are still varieties of interpretation of what I just said. Now let's move on to John Cotton, because his specific strain of Puritanism will be where Anne Hutchison jumps off from. Cotton took the most literal understanding of this doctrine and carried it through to its ultimate conclusion. Whereas other Puritans, and probably most Puritans, believe that a person can be elect, but must do good works in order to realize the presence of God's grace over them, their elect status, and have a genuine experience of God's grace in a memorable moment of realization. Furthermore, again in the general Puritan belief, if you are among the elect or the saintly, you should be a visible saint. You should do good things to attract the other elect to yourself, and if those good things are genuinely good, they will bear good fruit. As the Bible says, this process would be on the backbone of deep introspection, always wondering if what you're doing would be something that would be according to God's will or against it, and then always measuring the results of your actions and investments to see if they were successful or not. The successes they would take as signs from God of your continued elect status and his sanctifications of what you were doing. You would become a visible saint. This would cause Puritan communities to be hyper-concerned about work and more, and defining morality and creating moral codes that could be incorporated into the legal system. This would demand that people analyze themselves and they analyze others in the process of confirming the elect and identifying the people who were damned, who happened to contaminate their communities. I know that was a bit of a rant, but now when you think of the later Salem witch trials, you can see the process at work, and probably one of its worst ways. But Cotton, though, he kind of skips most of this. He goes right back to the beginning, wherein people are already predestined to be elect or damned. As such, there's no amount of work you can do to become elect. You already are from your birth. Election, God's grace, being saved is not something you can earn. There's no amount of work that will get you there. You either were there already or you were never going to get it. Whereas the more general Puritan will try to improve themselves, have that moment of realization in God's grace, share that experience, confirm it with other people, and then root out those who do not belong as they will be contaminating the saintly community, cotton was far more laxed. You don't need to root out the damned. You could live among the damned. You are already saved. You were always going to be saved, and there's nothing that can change that. It is predestination in its truest form. The term is free grace. You have grace for free. It was given to you. You did not earn it. And what will get Anne in trouble and her followers is the the comment that if you believed in works you're denying God's ultimate authority and his gift of grace and implying that you somehow earned your election, when in fact you can only be saved by grace alone, also in the Bible. Still within the Puritan sphere of ideas. But here's where Anne started to go off that edge, much as Roger Williams did several years before. Hutchinson taught that each elect person bathed in God's grace has an inner light inside of them that guides them, very similar to the Quaker beliefs that would arise in the very next decade. This inner light could speak to you if it wished and served as a direct link between God and yourself. If God chose to speak to you directly, these personal revelations were considered by Anne to be more authoritative or at least equal to biblical scripture the bible being divinely inspired but that inspiration was written down a long time ago and transmitted through various copies and argued that the divine inspiration you receive right now in your own living life that you experience is just as valid as any biblical scripture now you can see how we're really starting to diverge from puritanism many of her teachings we only know about from records written down by her enemies and so you might have to take some of those with a grain of salt but there are references to her belief that the soul dies with the body, and that a person will merge with the Holy Spirit, which has some similarities to various strains of Hinduism. But I don't know if these references fully square away with the rest of Anne's theology. Now, if you have this inner light and God can communicate with you directly, you are able to receive prophecies, which Anne would give. She would give prophecies like a religious authority, and she weighed these prophecies equal to or greater than those in the Bible. Her mentor, John Cotton, from time to time would also give prophecies. So would her brother-in-law, John Wheelwright. Most Puritans would not dabble in such things. They had a grown-in sense of doubt. They needed the confirmation of all the other elect members of their congregation to confirm their own elect status. They would preach and cite scripture, but to give a prophecy, such hubris was uncommon. Now where this starts to boil over, is if you have a direct line to God, what do you need clergy for? What do you need a congregation of fellow elect people for? Whereas the Protestants cast off the Catholic Church and made their own order and put the Bible into a vernacular language so they could more easily access it. More specifically, the Calvinist Puritans in England wanted to get rid of the Anglican bishops and have more direct access to their own congregation, how it is run, and who would be doing the preaching there and went all the way with it. If you're truly elect, you don't need any of that. Not even by your own design or someone else's design. You don't need a pope. You don't need a king, a bishop. And even on the micro level, you don't even need a reverend. You are elect. It's a done deal. Now, the Massachusetts Bay Colony and many of the Puritan colonies, they would start with the church, basically, and members of the church who have been designated as elect at this early date these were the only people allowed to vote in the actual government of the colony or even run for office Anne's theology threw away that entire church structure that underpinned government entirely as you can imagine not too many of the ministers were fond of her governor winthrop was also not too fond of her and at least for some of the time that she lived in massachusetts the hutchinsons lived right across the street from him where after formal church service she would have weekly meetings to help people work through their experiences and determine if they had had a true assurance of grace, a direct experience of Jesus, as if church and the congregation of the elect was not enough. She would also identify preachers who did and did not speak the word of God. She felt herself in authority able to do this. She would designate them as working through the Holy Spirit or those who worked ceremonies and rhetoric To achieve a covenant of works which again is the path to damnation these meetings originally were attended by the various women in the community and new england women would have meetings especially on church days when they would all be gathered anyway nothing too strange there but anne's opinions were strange and they undermined the validity of the massachusetts bay colony which by 1637 has had their charter rescinded. So they're already living in a precarious legal state in the English imagination. Now, her meetings were originally attended by women, but then the women started bringing their husbands, and the husbands started listening. Governor Winthrop, watching from his house, was afraid that Anne was planning to make a community of women who would run their men. And once the men who had suffrage started attending these meetings, it became a real political problem. Her husband, William Hutchinson, had some low-ranking positions in the general court. But then there were people higher up in the food chain. The Reverend Wheelwright and Cotton, of course, would be her friends. But then the colonial treasurer, William Coddington, falls in with Anne Hutchinson's crowd. Coddington was probably the richest man in the colony in terms of actual wealth. For a time, at least, he had the only brick house in Boston. And then, as I mentioned before, we have these waves of people coming in. When one of the latest waves came sir henry vane whose father was on the king's privy council to an american today you could only really compare this to a presidential cabinet and being in the colony less than a year sir henry vane is elected governor henry vane falls in with Anne hutchinson's crowd so now we have the colonial treasurer we have the colonial governor we have the most influential reverend in the colony john cotton and these newcomers threatened the established order. The most blatant example would be the Pequot War, which Massachusetts would fight against the Pequot tribe, hence Pequot War. And Hutchinson's followers were the leaders of the anti-Pequot War group, the men who refused to be part of that war. They refused to take up arms. Let's put that on the back burner for a minute. Other than in religious matters, Anne also had significant influence among the women of of at least Boston proper because she was known for her skills as a midwife and also as a nurse and an apothecary. She had a wide and effective knowledge of all things health in the 17th century, which made her incredibly influential among the women, all beliefs aside. And so what we have emerging is essentially two political parties, to use a modern term, one centered around Wheelwright, Ann, and Cotton in the general Boston area, emboldened by newer immigrants, and then the rest of the Massachusetts Bay Colony outside of Boston proper, who looked toward the founding wave of Puritans into Massachusetts for leadership. The colony had never faced this type of internal division before. Yes, they would exile one minister like Roger Williams and his small group of followers, but never was there a division that would come to actually rival one another in terms of numbers. Now it had. A meeting is held in December of 1636 between Anne Hutchinson and various ministers of the colony, including John Cotton. There were no definitive answers or conclusions or actions to be taken after this meeting, but Anne came away with the impression that the ministers were wrong in their views. And her teacher John Cotton also found that he could not completely side against what Anne was saying. Notice here that John Cotton is actually starting to pull away from supporting Anne Hutchinson, as her views did reach several conclusions that his own would not. Reverend Wheelwright, a little more bold, let it be known that his personal views definitely conflicted with the ministers of the colony. And at the December meeting of the general court, there were those who openly blamed Governor Vane for Anne Hutchinson's popularity. Now, Governor Vane, although of A very high class, the highest ranking person in the colony, in terms of old England social class, was only 22 years old when he was elected. And so he began crying. And he actually resigned as governor. He couldn't take the pressure. Hutchinson's followers very quickly convinced him to rescind his resignation. However, at the same meeting, William Hutchinson was removed from his low position of aiding the court. The wolves are circling. Now moving into 1637... This is when our story intersects with our episode on John Wheelwright, because in January of 1637, the colony called for a day of fasting to repair the political and religious divide the colony was facing, especially in light of the Pequot War. That's when John Wheelwright gives his fast day sermon, in which he encourages those living under a covenant of grace to resist those living under a covenant of works. He called these people legalists, those who believe that they could somehow, by their own efforts, earn their way to heaven despite the will of God. He condemned all the ministers of the colony other than himself and Cotton as antichrists. And to put it in modern terms, he basically said, because the ministers of this colony are antichrists and we're making all the wrong decisions and we're not living under a covenant of grace as a whole, All of Massachusetts is condemned to hell. This was the chance for the old guard under the former governor Winthrop to pounce because Wheelwright's sermon could be construed as sedition against the state. Now, remember, this is not a secular time. So although his sermons sound very religious in nature, not so much political, condemning a municipality to hell based on its own actions, would fall under what we would know now today as a secular charge of sedition. Wheelwright is brought into the general court to answer to this sermon, wherein they produce a written copy of his own sermon to him, one that he did not write, he doesn't know who wrote it, and they ask for him to certify the validity of these words he refuses. Wheelwright then asks who his accusers are, a right we enjoy today. He is told that his own sermon is his accuser. And then they needle him on every little point in this supposed transcription. And then he is ultimately convicted of sedition based on his damnation of the political and religious authorities of the colony. He asks for a right of appeal to have his case tried in England. He is denied that right. Wheelwright's sentencing will be delayed until November. But as we've seen with the case of Roger Williams, committing an act such as this, would be cause for uh, banishment or being exiled. By this time, the followers of Wheelwright and especially Anne and some of Cotton's people even were becoming known as antinomians, meaning against the law. They were the against the law group, a title assigned to them by their enemies. And then the antinomians would refer to the people living under a covenant of works as legalists. Wheelwright having already used the term. Now living in the age we do, the term legalist probably brings up the Chinese philosophy of legalism, but at the time, calling someone a legalist probably triggered a more biblical reference to the Sadducees, a Jewish sect in the time of Jesus who emphasized adherence to the law and the law alone, and thus missing God's grace and God's message. Many of these people that would be called antinomians would sign a petition that would protest Wheelwright's conviction of sedition, the antinomian still feeling powerful enough to do such a thing. But later on, this written petition with names signed on it will be used as a hit list of sorts to isolate those who would also be suspect of crimes such as sedition or would otherwise need to be removed from positions of power in the government. And the legalists would have this opportunity come the May 17th election. Now, they move the voting place for the entire colony, which used to be in Boston proper, to Newton, or Newtown, as it was known at the time. That would make it at least a little harder for the people of Boston, the center of the antinomian party, to cast their votes. In this election, Governor Winthrop and his party of the old guard routs the antinomians. Sir Henry Vane loses his re-election for governor. It looks like William Coddington, the treasurer, holds on to at least some of his power for now, but this election would completely eliminate any illusion of parity that the antinomians had with the legalists. It was over. Wheelwright is waiting sentencing. William Hutchinson no longer has his court position. Sir Henry Vane is out of office. The legalists now move to completely push out the antinomians. One of the first thing the new general court does is they pass a law requiring any candidate for governor to reside in the colony for at least a year. A huge slap in the face to Sir Henry Vane, which everyone could feel. Vane had a four-man honor guard that would protect the governor. All four of these men quit the day that Winthrop came to regain his position. Vane and Coddington, who used to sit with Winthrop in church, now rose to sit across the aisle. John Cotton remained sitting on a fence in between both groups. But the antinomians socially, religiously, and politically now set themselves apart, having no part of Winthrop's society. Sir Henry Vane went so far as to leave Massachusetts. He simply went back to England. You can see this as an act of protest, but it only served to further weaken Wheelwright and Anne Hutchinson's positions in the colony. The general court in July passes the Alien Act requiring that anyone migrating into the colony of Massachusetts receive permission from the general court if staying more than three weeks. This would serve to keep out the new radicals who would be coming into the colony, especially followers of John Wheelwright, including much of the extended Hutchinson fold, who are only now planning on migrating over to the New World. The very next month, due to their distrust of the antinomians and their refusal to fight in the Pequot War, Massachusetts moved the colonial armory out of Boston. In the church service of Boston, Pastor Wilson, more than anybody else, came in conflict with the antinomian group. Anne's male followers would interrupt the pastor to ask questions in a backhanded way of criticizing different things he would say, whereas Anne's female followers would just get up and leave, sometimes just when the pastor would come up for his portion of the service citing a women's problem. I'm going to quote the historian Eve LaPlante at this point. Anne Hutchinson's greatest crime and the source of her power was the series of weekly public meetings she held at her house to discuss scripture and theology. At first in 1635, the evening meetings had been just for women, who were then generally encouraged to gather in small groups to gossip and offer mutual support. Soon, scores of women Enchanted by her intelligence and magnetism, flocked to hear her analysis of this week's scripture reading, which many preferred to the minister's latest interpretation. Anne Hutchinson was essentially making her own church not in communion with the Puritan churches of Massachusetts, nor not at all sanctioned by the government of Massachusetts. But after the election of 1637, her enemies, now feeling quite powerful, didn't feel they had to deal with this anymore. In October of 1637, Reverend Wilson didn't wait for Hutchinson to get up and leave. Reverend Wilson looked right at her and asked her to leave church service, which she did. Her most powerful supporter at this point would be John Cotton, who was already wavering between the two camps. Unknown to Hutchinson, the ministers held a secret meeting with Cotton, going over 82 separate disagreements the two groups seemed to have, and wanting to know where Cotton fell on these issues. At the end of the meeting, Cotton concedes to all 82 points, now agreeing with the ministers of the colony over Anne and Wheelwright, further isolating Hutchinson. Moving into November of 1637, the general court now charges Anne Hutchinson. At this point, with nothing specifically, but she is called to the court, which is an unusual move to be brought in front of a court and have nothing formally charged against you, But that is how powerful the opposition to Anne Hutchinson had become at that point. Because by now, Reverend John Wheelwright was planning to leave Massachusetts upon his exile and was going to settle in Exeter, now part of New Hampshire. His supporters, aligned with Anne, who had signed these petitions, they many of them had been disenfranchised, disarmed, and in the coming months, many would also be exiled. Her only supporter who seemed to have any political power left in the colony was William Coddington who again risked everything by testifying on Anne's behalf in court. The again Governor Winthrop used this as an opportunity to berate Anne and criticize her beliefs in open court. The strong-willed Anne wouldn't just sit there and take the lecture from Winthrop. and decided to debate him, but their debate would just escalate into a a full-throated argument. Anne, being many months pregnant, actually became so heated at one point she fainted. But Winthrop had no sympathy for her, During what ended up becoming her trial, Hutchinson was put under house arrest and was not allowed to live with her own children. Ministers were sent there in an effort to privately get her to recant so that they wouldn't have to exile a pregnant woman in the middle of winter. Winthrop and Hutchinson in court would cite scripture for their various beliefs and attacks on one another and would compare herself to the patriarch Abraham himself. In saying that she had a direct line of communication with God. Asked to elaborate on this, she said that she could commune with God directly. By the voice of his own spirit to my soul. And again, if you've been paying attention, this type of claim was far from the Puritan norm, and often seen as proof of insanity, or even being influenced by evil spirits, by the devil. Which might seem silly to you, but it's not that different than somebody claiming to hear voices in their head today. What conclusions would you run to immediately? And finally, by the end of the trial, they managed to come up with a charge for Anne. The charge would be false revelation, for which the court found her guilty. And this charge would be the basis for a conviction of banishment from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, only to be forestalled by her pregnancy. And as was given to Wheelwright, the opportunity to rescind all of these things she said and come back into the fold of the elect. But even this would not silence Anne. In court, she was given a chance to speak and respond to her conviction, to which she declared, No man has any power over my body, neither can he do me any harm, for I am at the hands of the eternal Jehovah, my Savior. And specifically on her being banished, she said, For this you go about to do to me, God will ruin you and your posterity. And this whole state. And, like her brother-in-law John Wheelwright, was banished. But this wouldn't be enough for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They also wanted to excommunicate her from the communion of churches. Still pregnant, she was still in the colony as of March 1638, refusing the visits of many reverends trying to turn her views around, her exile contingent upon her giving birth. Now she would face trial in her church with the possibility of excommunication, which probably stung Anne harder than a banishment, as one is merely political and the other is spiritual. The historian Thomas Jefferson Wurtenbacher says of this second trial, the clergy would probably not have quarreled had not Mrs. Hutchinson taken it upon herself to decide who was under the covenant of works and thus destined to damnation. Indeed, listening to this inner light that she had, And then telling people what this inner light was telling her, not in the form of opinions or suggestions, but definite judgments set her apart from the church community, for which the Puritans believed was a group of elect people who would recognize the grace in one another. Instead, you had one woman dictating judgments and also influencing others to find that inner voice in them and form their own independent judgments. And again, the religious authorities feared that Anne Hutchinson was essentially leading people towards anarchy, and in an inward sense, towards ego, to think that your judgment alone, your communion with God alone, was somehow superior to that of the group, and all of their individual experiences of God, and all of the written word, and even going back to the idea that grace alone would save you, which of course the Puritans would believe, But the mainline Puritan belief would also hold that if you did obtain God's grace, you would have a saintly life, and your acts that would follow would advertise your election. We've gone over this. and of course, argued that that was unnecessary, and would feed into the ego of those people into thinking that they could somehow earn salvation, or simply not be among the saved, but do certain outward acts to appear that they were elect, and thus taint the purity of a Puritan congregation. As we can see now in the 21st century here, these two systems of beliefs don't belong with one another. Now, one of Ann Hutchinson's closest friends and followers was a woman by the name of Mary Dyer, who in the previous year had a stillborn baby. During Ann Hutchinson's church trial, Governor Winthrop had the corpse of that stillborn baby dug up. Winthrop wanted to show the deformities of the dead baby, and thus demonstrate that Anne's monstrous words created in her friend a monster. Things have taken a sharp turn. And then at her trial, John Cotton, the father figure to her after her father had passed away. Her mentor and teacher, the man she followed to the new world, bringing her whole family and extended family with her, John Cotton now has his opportunity in the church court to speak to Anne. Now remember, he had been reconciled with the ministers of the colony in a secret meeting. Anne doesn't know about this. Cotton looks at Anne and says to her, Your opinions fret like a gangrene and spread like a leprosy and infect far and near and will eat out the very bowels of religion. Of all the screaming and accusations John Winthrop threw in her direction, this must have been the most hurtful thing Anne had to endure a man she would formerly have followed to the ends of the earth was now calling her to her face a disease a growing festering wound and then she is excommunicated from the church and now very much emotionally torn apart very far along in her pregnancy completely exhausted at this point simply says the lord judges not as man judges What was she to do now? A pariah, socially, politically. Her fair-weather friends had gone, but she still had a committed core of people behind her. Some of the Hutchinson Fold, the Coddingtons, the Dyers, and while she was pregnant and put on trial, they were busy. In March of 1638, the male followers of Anne Hutchinson met in secret, probably at the house of William Coddington. They had opened a correspondence with Roger Williams of Providence and was seeking a new location to found their own settlement, their own independent colony. Williams, being a great friend of the Wampanoag and the Narragansett, might be able to help them secure a location. And in the meantime, they designed a pledge of loyalty to one another, a compact or combination that in time would be known as the Portsmouth Compact. It's signed by 23 men representing their families, including William Hutchinson and William Coddington. While Roger Williams' plan of government in Providence was uniquely secular in that day and age and had no mention of God, the Portsmouth Compact was uniquely religious and completely omits any reference to the King of England or any earthly king. In fact, it says we will submit our persons, lives, and estates onto the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. It gives no specific allegiance to anyone on earth whatsoever. It included a rudimentary plan of government, which would include just one elected leader known as a judge in the Old Testament style. Later on, this would be elaborated on with the election of elders underneath the judge. Again, a government specifically using biblical and church terms For municipality leaders. This would not be any free and open society like Roger Williams was designing of equals where everyone was voting. This was more like a theocracy. Williams suggested for their settlement the nearby island of Aquidneck, otherwise known as Rhode Island, very close to his own Providence. And he arranged for the sale of that land from the natives to Hutchinson's followers. The men in the late winter of 1638 into the spring found their way to the north side of Aquidneck Island and began building a settlement living in tents as they worked this early settlement was still known by the native name for that part of the island PacaSet and I'm going to quote the historian John M Berry here in relation to the Portsmouth Compact and PacaSet it had no formal or legal connection to Williams own mainland community that's right we have Providence plantations on the mainland And then we're going to have this settlement of Pocasset on what will be Rhode Island. They are friendly neighbors, but there are no sort of union with one another at this point. There is no Rhode Island and Providence plantations as you would know it. Coddington, who is very wealthy, was able to bring a lot of his resources to the new settlement, along with William Hutchinson, who was not exiled himself like his wife and was able to keep his business interests in Boston especially. Hutchinson actually had a lot of money invested in the entire transatlantic world, including faraway places like Barbados. And so with more money and connections than Williams on the mainland ever had, Pocasset almost from the beginning becomes the larger settlement. Again, I ask you from the beginning of the Roger Williams episode, who actually founded Rhode Island? People will insist it's Roger Williams, but here we are on the literal Rhode Island, and it seems like he's been overshadowed already, not waiting to give birth April 1st, 1638, Anne begins her six-day walk to the South. Accompanied by some of her children and a few supporters, she walks to Roger Williams' settlement of Providence. Williams, over the next couple of years, will come to really value conversations with Anne. As I mentioned in the last episode, the more Williams looks inward and outward, the more he comes to doubt everything he believes. Where Anne goes the other way, and she becomes more and more certain of herself and her convictions. Again, having this direct connection to God. Roger Williams found this certainty to be refreshing to his own, what we would call today, agnosticism about nearly everything. From Providence, she takes a boat to Aquidneck Island, to the new Pocasset settlement, where she is reunited with her husband for the first time in six months. Shortly after her arrival, the island is hit with an earthquake. Governor Winthrop back in Massachusetts, he never really lets go of Anne. He always keeps track of her. And having heard of the earthquake, he took it as a sign of God's displeasure. Shortly after this, Hutchinson goes into labor in May of 1638 and only gives birth to what her doctor described as transparent grapes. Back in Massachusetts, people begin to gossip, and the rumor goes around that Sir Henry Vane had impregnated both Dyer and Hutchinson, causing both to have monsters. Governor Winthrop says of these events, As she had vented misshapen opinions, so she must bring forth deformed monsters. Earthquakes and stillbirths were taken as omens at this time. To Winthrop and his party, this would only confirm that they were correct in their exile and excommunication of Hutchinson. But early Pocasset looked quite promising, especially compared with nearby Providence. To quote historian Sidney James, the antinomian refugees included men with a variety of occupations. There were craftsmen, farmers, servants, and seafarers among them, as well as an innkeeper and a physician. Just as the waves of Puritans left England and made overnight communities in New England, so they had again left Massachusetts and made a fully functioning community on the island over the course of a season. But with all that promise, Anne had already introduced this idea of complete spiritual individuality, everyone was essentially able to look inward and find the truth, their truth being the truth, no matter what someone on the outside says. Because if you are truly elect, then who can tell you anything else? And so divisions began to grow even in this small little community of Pocasset. The elected judge of the community, as outlined in the compact, ended up being William Coddington, William Hutchinson serving as one of the elders, it was clear that Coddington had invested more in this settlement and had lost more in his fall from position in Massachusetts. Therefore, in the 17th century mind, it appeared that William Coddington would be the ranking member of the community. Thus, he became the judge in true Old Testament style. But that allowed him a certain amount of power that could truly take the form of a theocratical dictator. And so, whatever transpired during this year or so, on April 30th, 1639, there was a town meeting where Coddington's power was usurped, where some powerful faction of the island's men overthrows Coddington in his judge position, and then they put William Hutchinson in charge of Pocasset. This is aided by a new faction on the island known as the Gortonists, under a man named Samuel Gorton, who can't seemingly get along with anyone at this point. The Gortonists are aligned with the Hutchinsons and they overthrow the Coddington faction. William Coddington immediately flees to the south end of the island. Not a creative fella, he creates a Newport city called Newport. Again, independent from Pocasset and Providence. In the days that would follow, the wealthiest settlers in Pocasset would now move with Coddington to Newport. And thus the early promises and capital inflow into Pocasset We're now headed to the south end of the island. It's around this time that Pocasset takes on an English name and the settlers name it Portsmouth. And just as quickly as Portsmouth had overcome Providence, now Newport would be more prominent than either of the two. This process will continue if every single time you have a spiritual disagreement, you can just run away, buy land from the natives and start your own colonial entity it'll continue to splinter and splinter over and over again. To quote the historian Sidney V. James concerning Anne, the tragedy of her life, perhaps, was her inability to build where there was nothing to tear down. And in Portsmouth, it seems like Anne had lost some of her steam after a while. She was growing older, obviously had some health issues, and she simply didn't end up becoming the focal point of the community. Late in this very same year, 1639, Coddington declares himself governor of the colony of Rhode Island. Which again, let's go back to the original argument here. Is Roger Williams the founder of Rhode Island? For a while, it seemed so. Then it seemed like Anne, who led to the actual settlement of Aquidneck Island, was our founder. But then, after all, Coddington was the first leader of Pocasset, the founder of Newport, and the self declared governor of the colony of Rhode Island. So now we have three people in the running for the founder. Elated. That Anne's followers had segmented further, Coddington, who, like Hutchinson, had a lot of money invested in the Massachusetts colony, in correspondence with the Massachusetts General Court, gets Massachusetts to recognize Newport and acknowledge his governance of the entire island, which of course would include Portsmouth, against their will. Furthermore, Massachusetts, now feeling encouraged, in February of 1640, begins sending churchmen to Aquidneck Island to Portsmouth to try to convince Anne to recant the things she said and come back into the fold. Anne ultimately denied them and even denied the existence of a church in Boston, which instead of a church she called a whore. The next month in March, in what may have been a revolution in Portsmouth against William Hutchinson, Portsmouth submits to the authority of Newport, and William Coddington is then acknowledged as governor of both settlements, and thus the whole island, confirming his earlier view. William Hutchinson is reduced to being one of his assistants. Over the last two years or so, new settlers had been streaming in from Massachusetts as they were exiled, banished, or otherwise made uncomfortable in that settlement. The island probably had twice as many families as Providence. As such with this many people, and now a unified island, a new plan of government Was created. The aforementioned historian Sidney V. James calls this new Newport Portsmouth Union as an island commonwealth or state. Now, grasping for legitimacy, they pledged allegiance to King Charles I, who originally they didn't even acknowledge in their original combination. King Charles I probably had no awareness or care for what was going on on this distant island. With a governor and assistance under that governor, All the freemen of the island, those who were not indentured, were allowed to vote directly on legislation. No church membership required or ownership of land to obtain this suffrage, which would be quite different than Massachusetts. Also, what church could you even be a member of? As Hutchinson's followers, Coddington's group on the south end of the island, the Gortonists, there were too many factions. And with some unrest on the island, it's known that Coddington tried in vain to raise funds for a prison. But he had learned his lesson from before, and both towns enjoyed a high degree of autonomy. And what really scared the Hutchinsons was that between the years 1640 and 42, in this zone, Coddington began flirting with the idea of coming under Massachusetts jurisdiction. Such a thing would be a travesty to her and her followers, and to everyone on the island who was already banished from the Massachusetts colony. Winthrop and Massachusetts as a whole would just never let go of Anne or her family. In fall of 1641, while in Boston, Anne's son Francis, and son-in-law, William Collins, were arrested, as Collins had a written letter in his possession that claimed that the ministers of the colony were anti-Christian. Even those who were not banished from Massachusetts, if present in Massachusetts, and expressing some connection to Anne, could find themselves in trouble. In a correspondence between the governor of Massachusetts and the governor of Plymouth in 1642, Portsmouth is mentioned to which it is judged. They rend themselves from all true churches of Christ, and many of them from all powers of the Magistry. It is in this year, 1642, that Anne's constant protector, supporter, quiet companion, William Hutchinson, dies. Her and her children are now on an island where their own governor was actively seeking its absorption by Massachusetts. Anne would now seek to flee any english domain whatsoever and sought permission to settle in the new netherland colony now at this point it seems that anne was truly abandoned by most of her followers if not all of them other than her own family because she did remove to new netherland and joining her were her children who were still minors and two of her adult children, with their families. The Hutchinsons were quite used to interacting with the various natives of New England and had learned a bit of their language and gotten along with them quite well, such as Roger Williams had. And so in August of 1643, a group of Siwanoi natives under Chief Wampage visits the little hamlet that the Hutchinson fold had created. The Hutchinsons came out to greet them. That's when the Siwanoi attacked. They killed Anne. They murdered everyone and scalped them for trophies, with the exception of one little girl, Anne's daughter, Susanna Hutchinson, about eight years old at the time. Chief Wampage took her, holding her as a captive for several years. He came to impregnate her, and they had a child together. Furthermore, the chief took the name of his most famous kill, and would become known as Anne Hoach. Can you imagine being a little girl in the captivity of such a man, who would force himself on you, And insist on going by the name of your dead mother whom he killed eight or so years later she'd be allowed to go free but her son would have to stay with the tribe he became chief wampage the second the grandson of anne hutchinson and the son of her murderer who again insisted on using her name the part of the story that is missing here is that anne hutchinson arrived in new netherland during a time known as keefe's war where Governor Willem Kieft of the New Netherland colony, through his blunders, had insisted on extracting a corn tribute from the natives of what would now be downstate New York and parts of New Jersey. This created a rebellion against Dutch rule, a rule they never acknowledged in the first place. And while Dutch authorities had insisted that the Hutchinson family keep weapons and stay away from the natives, The Hutchinsons would do neither and would end up becoming victims of a war they didn't start, didn't participate in, but would nonetheless be their very end. I imagine not the place you, as a listener, thought this episode would be going. Concerning Anne, the historian Thomas Jefferson Wurtenbacher said, Had fate placed her in a later age, she would have been an active suffragette or a member of Congress. It's an interesting thing to think about, a person taken out of their time into a more fortunate time, because I don't want this to be where the episode ends. I don't want this to be what Anne Hutchinson's fate is. But the people in the Massachusetts Bay Colony wanted this to be the end. They considered this divine justice. They celebrated Anne's death. The maliciousness shown to Anne Hutchinson, especially by Governor Winthrop, he would not duplicate with Reverend Wheelwright or with Roger Williams of Providence. It had a sharpness to it and a persistence that is unequaled, which leads me on digressions of thought. Where, was this due to her gender? Did that play into the vitriol that was thrown in her direction? Me, with my modern point of view, that's what immediately jumps out. But how long can you spend speculating on such things? I am going to try to put a good spin on the end of Anne Hutchinson, in in terms of her legacy, anyway. So Anne Hutchinson had her own family, which was very large. A lot of her children were murdered. But a lot of them were already grown and had families of their own. She had many kids. Her kids had many kids, as the Puritans did. And this all happened 350-plus years ago. She has many, many descendants in the United States today. Perhaps in the millions. And these descendants have been some very prominent people. On the eve of the American Revolution, the last royal governor of Massachusetts was her great-great-grandson, Thomas Hutchinson. And so... There was a day where the Hutchinsons managed to rule over Massachusetts itself. But since then, her descendants include the Bush family, the political Bush family, the Romney family, FDR, and can't forget, Ted Danson, and even perhaps you sitting here and listening to this right now. She has a very real human legacy. And as I said before, while she might compete with Coddington for being the founder of Aquidneck Island, Rhode Island proper, in its English presence, she's the reason Coddington ever ended up on that island. She's definitely in the competition for being the founder of the state of Rhode Island. She's in the running with Roger Williams, of course. Also, historians have pointed out that while the plans for Harvard University were already in the works at the beginning of the antinomian controversy, preparations were kicked into high gear because of the controversy, as one of the goals of Harvard University was to create a school for the clergy of New England, where they could all attend and receive a standardized education and thus become uniform with one another, stay in communion with one another. The movement caused by Anne Hutchinson's belief further necessitated that school. And so the old saying is, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, if Harvard is the invention, the necessity, the mother, was Anne Hutchinson. What now would happen to Portsmouth now that their founder, Anne, was dead. While we're at the same place we were in our last episode on Roger Williams, you have Coddington trying to submit to the authority of Massachusetts. You have Massachusetts at the edges of Providence's domain trying to absorb it on the mainland. Roger Williams then goes to England to try to get a charter, protecting all of the dissident settlements in Narragansett Bay. But Massachusetts will send their own agents, and later on, so will William Coddington. The Rhode Island that you know does not exist yet. And so our story continues into our next episode, where Williams and Coddington will go head-to-head for the fate of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Thank you for listening. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis.